0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our text this morning is taken from Revelation 20. In order to put that into context somewhat, though, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars in her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, And you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. In our series on the book of Revelation, we've come to Revelation chapter 20. I was going to take the whole chapter, but that's probably too much, so we'll take the first ten verses of Revelation 20 this morning. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been giving authority to judge, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead had not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first Resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadths of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Years ago, an American dispensational writer called Hal Lindsay wrote a book entitled Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. And in that book, which soon zoomed to the top of the bestseller list, he wrote all about the devil, who he is, what he does, how he works, and so forth. And in some ways, it can be said that Hal Lindsey did the Christian church a service, for he reminded one and all that the devil is not to be ignored, dismissed, or forgotten. In the well-known words of Martin Luther's hymn, he is still the prince of darkness grim. But getting back to Lindsay's book, is it true that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth? Is it so that Satan has everything going for him? Does he really have an open field of opportunity today? Can he do what he likes, go where he pleases, and do as he determines? If that's true, then you and I, as well as Jan here this morning, are in deep trouble. For who are we as mere mortals to withstand the greatest of all enemies? How then will we prevail, remain faithful, and win in the end? If everything is well for Satan on planet Earth, then it is decidedly not well for us. Well, beloved, it's with these questions in mind that we also need to approach our text of this morning in the book of Revelation. In a most stunning and surprising way, it reminds us that Lindsay and others, and there are many others, have missed something here. And indeed, on the basis of this chapter, at least the first ten verses, I would like to preach to you on the following theme. Satan is alive, but not well, on planet Earth. we will see he's bound, defeated, finished. So Satan is alive, but not well, on planet Earth. Beloved, as we turn to Revelation 20, you may wonder about my approach to this chapter. The question arises, is it really about Satan? Is it not about the thousand years? My Native Study Bible has a heading in which it says, The Thousand Years. And also you may know that the expression the thousand years is repeatedly mentioned in the verses two, three, four, five, six, and seven. It's a bit like a refrain here. And let it also be said that the thousand years that this expression has been a bit of an eruption. It's caused an eruption of black ink. How many people have not written about it over the years? You know, you could easily fill a library filled with thousands of volumes only on this expression, a thousand years, and then as well in all the rest of Revelation 20. This part of Scripture is the source of endless debates and disagreements. Now, if you ask what sorts of disagreements or debates, well, for example, should this expression, a thousand years, be taken literally or symbolically? Is the thousand years a time that has been, is now, or will be? And also there is the question, what is it that happens during this thousand years, during this time period? You see, on and on the questions go, and because the questions go, the books flow as well. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, first of all, I think it leaves us with reasons to proceed with care And humility. If you and I think that we have all the answers to the questions raised here in Revelation 20, we are mistaken. I've had two months to think about this particular part of Scripture. And I still have lots of questions. In some ways, Revelation 20 is like a minefield. And you know that when you go through a minefield, you have to walk very carefully... Very slowly. In the second place, we should also approach Revelation 20, what I would call consistently. What do I mean by that? Well, I I mean that earlier in this book, when we dealt with numbers, we saw almost invariably that the numbers are symbolic. For example, we noted the significance of three for God, four for the earth, Seven for completeness or wholeness. Twelve for the church or the people of God. In addition, we also dealt with that number 144,000 sealed, which you find in chapter 7. And we said this is not a literal number, like the Jehovah Witnesses used to say. They've revised themselves since then. But it's a number pointing to, to a whole large, massive body of Believers, all the chosen of God from the Old and the New Testament dispensation. So consistency would then have us approach the number a thousand, not in a literal or historical fashion, but also in a symbolical one. So if it's symbolical, it's what is, of what is it symbolical? Well, to make it very Simple. It's symbolic of a special period of time. And indeed, it's symbolic of that period of time that begins, you can say, with the birth of Jesus Christ. and That ends close to the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, beloved, what I'm saying to you this morning is that you and I are today living... In this thousand year period, these are not so much the days of Elijah as they are the days of Christ's one thousand year rule. Now what happens during these days, during these years? You can see one of the things that happens, and that's really the main thing here, is the binding of Satan. Verse 1, And I saw an angel coming out, down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. Notice the movement here. It's from heaven to earth. And notice the equipment that the angel has. It's both a key and a huge chain. Next, look at verse 2. He, the angel, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan. Notice the four names of the evil one are are repeated, just like they're repeated in chapter 12. You know, as interesting as all the questions about the thousand-year reign may be, it's, it's really in this text not so much about these years as it is about the devil. And his relation to God. And his kingdom. And what happens to him? So what happens to him? Well, look at verse 3. He, the angel, threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. The abyss is that very deep and bottomless place where the ancients said the demons live. And that's now where Satan is thrown by the angel, locked up, and sealed in. Only notice two more things. First of all, the reason and then the time. The reason why he is locked up is to keep him, it says, from deceiving the nations. And the time is until the thousand years were ended. So what do we have here? You could say we have the specific binding of the dragon, the serpent, the devil, or Satan. And he's bound with respect to the nations. Now, that calls for a bit of an explanation. You know, if you look back over the period of the Old Testament, what what do you see? Well, what you really see in the Old Testament with regard to what happens there and to all of creation is a long period of darkness. A long period of darkness, especially when it comes to the nations. All the nations are caught in the grip of superstition, of many gods and idols. Many super, many nations are worshipping the darkness. And you know, there's really only one place, one place where there's any light and any hope, and that's in Israel. And of course, from time to time, some people and some nations are drawn to the light. It's true that during the time of the prophet Jonah, probably people in Nineveh saw the light for a period of time. Perhaps also in Babylon, during the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, there was some light shining in that foreign capital. And then there are people like Rahab and Ruth and the Ammon, the Syrian and many others who were drawn to the light. But, you know, the world as a whole remains in darkness. And that doesn't really, truly change until we come to the time of the book of Acts. For it's after Christ's ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the gospel breaks through and begins to impact the nations. The Greeks and the Romans and the Spaniards and the Gauls. And the light begins to shine in in Europe and in the Americas and Africa and Asia. And today, beloved, the light of the gospel is shining everywhere. In some places more brightly. In some places less brightly. But it is shining everywhere. You can almost read the gospel in every language. The light is universal. And so you see, there has, if you look over history, there's been this, this massive shift. This huge change has taken place. The church, which once was very local and limited, has become truly Catholic and, and universal and international. And the church now includes not just Jews, but all of us Gentiles. And that's what all of you are. Ex-Gentiles. That's what Jan is. A Gentile. But now we've been brought in. And how is that possible? What accounts for all of this? Well, beloved, really, Revelation is saying, if you look behind the scenes, I'll show you. I'll show you why this has happened and how this has happened. Look behind the curtain of history, and what do you see? You see a defeated Satan. You may remember the Lord Jesus, before he even begins his, or as he begins his ministry, one of the first things he does is he tackles the devil in the wilderness. And he stands up to him and makes him flee. And you may recall that in Luke 10, the disciples had gone out and they came back. And, and they were rather shocked and surprised. And they say to the Lord Jesus in verse 17, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then the Lord Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven on another occasion Jesus remarks now is the time for judgment on this world now the prince of this world will be driven out but I he says when I am lifted up will draw all men to myself and then too there is what our Lord says in Matthew 12 how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless He first ties up the strong man. Literally, he says, unless one first binds up the strong man. The same word is used in Matthew 12 and Revelation 20. You see, beloved, Jesus Christ, through his angel, has bound up the strong man with respect to the nation's He's been locked and sealed for this special purpose in order that our Savior may draw all people to himself and to his glory. Does that mean that Satan is toothless today? Well, really he's toothless with respect to only one thing, and that is he can no longer master the nations. But yet in all other respects, he is still like a lion, as Peter says, seeking people to devour. In some ways, you can compare the devil to a dog, a fierce, growling dog on a chain. And you know that, that outside of, of the reach of that chain, you can stand very safely You can even mock him and make faces at him. You can even goad him. It doesn't matter. All he can do is snarl and bark and so forth. But, but you know, if you step within the the reach of that chain, then watch out. You'll soon be in deep trouble. And so really, beloved, what our text is saying, what the scripture is saying is approach the devil carefully and properly. Be be thankful that he's bound and, and cannot prevent us from hearing and embracing the gospel, that we can live in the light. But at the same time, be on your guard. When it comes to the other powers. And the other abilities the devil still has. He can and he does tempt us and lead us astray. He does always still exploit our weaknesses. He can zero in on all of our vulnerabilities. He knows all the chinks in your armor. He can still undermine your confession. We still need the armor of God to withstand him. And so dress yourself in that armor as you find it in, for example, Ephesians 6. All of you, keep on dressing yourself in the armor of God to withstand the darts of the devil. And that also includes you, Yum, this morning. But then, beloved, if the devil's current state needs to be approached with a mixture of rejoicing and respect. And I think that's probably the best thing we can say. Rejoicing and respect. Realize that it never needs to be met with with fear. You know, Martin Luther was right when he said, We tremble not for him. And why not? Well, look next at the verses 4 to 6. If you look at the verses 4 and 6 of this chapter, you'll see the focus shifts. It now moves from, from earth back to heaven. And again, we're told about what's happening behind the scene of history, the curtain. So what's happening? Well, notice there in these three verses, we meet souls again. We meet the beheaded ones or the martyrs. We meet those whom we met before in chapter 6 in connection with the opening of the fifth seal. And, And, you know, there they had cried out, How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge? And there, too, we were told that they had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony. Well, you know, here in chapter 20, you meet the same people again, right? They're called the souls of those who had been beheaded, And why? Well, because it says in verse 4 of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. And it even adds something. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So what do we have here? We have the faithful ones. We have those believers who have not compromised, recanted denied their faith in Jesus Christ. We have those who are willing to die for their faith. No threats, no tortures, no cruelties could deter them. But you know, more is said about these quote-unquote obstinate people Look at the end of verse 4. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. And then there is this comment added in verse 5. This is the first resurrection. Well, there's even a, a compliment. Blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. So what is all of this? Well, this is John, the Apostle John, telling us what has happened to these martyrs. Remember, in John's writing, the church is suffering greatly. There's much torment and persecution all over Asia Minor. The Romans were slaughtering Christians by the tens of thousands, chaining them to the galleys, feeding them to the lions and the ampus heaters, hanging them on countless crosses and crossroads. And you can be sure that amidst all of that gruesome persecution, there was mockery as well. Where is your great Jesus now? So much for your Savior. Renounce that upstart King Jesus. Nothing good will ever come out of this. You're suffering for nothing. You're dying a useless death. You have no future. Recant and bow before the emperor. So is this good advice? Is the cause of Jesus Christ really an empty, useless, worthless cause? Now, beloved, John shows us, most decidedly, that it's not. Look at these saints. Had death and torture defeated them? Had death annihilated them? Was it in their case all for naught, for nothing? Hardly. After suffering and dying, they have come to life again. Indeed, John says, they are the recipients of the first resurrection. God, in other words, has raised them to life, up to his throne and into his presence. And the result, it's twofold. They have no fear. Verse 6, the second death or eternal death has no power over them anymore. And notice they are reigning. They are priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So where are the martyrs today? Indeed, where are all of God's faithful, departed followers? They're above where Christ is. They're reigning with him. They're alive with him. They're judging with him. Go back to verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And beloved, how? how all of this should encourage us and how it should encourage our brother as well. In this world, Christians are still mocked, ridiculed, dismissed, tortured, killed. We're often portrayed as the ultimate losers. But you know, here in Revelation 20, we are reminded in graphic fashion of just how wrong the world is. In Christ, we get to rise. We get to live. We get to reign. We get to judge. We get to live in glory. It's all game. But, beloved, having seen that, there still is the devil. We see that he's not just bound. We see that he's defeated by the saints. But there is something else. And again, Martin Luther sums it up well in his hymn when he said, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. That brings us to the verses 7 to 10. For all along, John has been saying that this binding of Satan is for a limited time. It's for a thousand years. In other words, it's not forever and ever. And so what happens after the thousand years are up? Well, at the end of verse 3, we read, after that, he must be set free for a short time. And notice verse 7 adds, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So the picture is this. Satan will one day be unbound, and he will go out to do what he has been unable to do for a thousand years, which is to deceive the nations. And indeed he will gather many followers to his side. Gog and, and Magog are really the a- names of ancient foes. You find them mention in the book of Ezekiel, and these same kind of foes will be there again. And they will march. They will march against the Church of God. The saints will come under attack again. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised suddenly we enter into a time of intense persecution. The when and the where, we we don't always know. Baba beloved, prepare for the fact that as it's sometimes called, Satan's little, just little season is coming. But yet again, do not fear. For look at what God will do. He will, it says here very clearly, He will consume our enemies. Fire will come down from heaven and devour them. And as for the devil, he'll be taken and he'll be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. He will go to the same place where the prophet, the false prophet and the beast went back in chapter 19. And there they will be in torment forever and ever, day and night. You see, Satan's doom is sure. He is finished. And so, beloved, what you now get in the book of Revelation is you get the big picture. You don't get every detail. You don't get an answer to every one of your questions. These are broad strokes which tell us what the future holds as well as the present. And and for us, it holds, as you can see, all manner of victory and vindication. Sometimes people say the book of Revelation is hard to read. You know, you, you give it to one of your kids and ask them to read it. And then you, you tell them, summarize the message of the book of Revelation in one sentence. And what will you hear? Simply this. Jesus wins. Cause that's the thrust of this book. True suffering and persecution are not totally gone. And now we know they'll be short. And better yet, they'll not do us in. Our God will keep us forever and ever. And it's with that assurance and that confidence that we all may live and work. And it's also in that assurance and confidence that Yom may make his public profession of faith here this morning. Here in Revelation 20, God is reminding you and all of us that in Jesus Christ, we are more than cannon fodder. We really are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.